0: It's good to see all of you here today. If you look around, these are the people who are not in Florida this morning, so uh, you are the remnant, and uh, clearly you love the Lord more than most. If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to be continuing our walk through Romans chapter 1, well, the entire book of Romans, but we're going to pick up in verse 8 as Paul is addressing the identity crisis of the church in Rome there where and I would encourage you if you don't understand the context of that to kind of grab last week's sermon online and listen to that because it will help this pop as well but long story short all of the Jews have been removed from Rome. They're away for six years. Only the Gentiles are in the church. Then the Roman or the Jews get to come back and they come back and they and finish the sentence. They come back after six years of only having Gentile influence in the church. And the Jews come back into Rome and they say, This is not my it's not my church. This looks like nothing I left. And there's an identity problem there. And that's what we're going to pick up in verse eight. Paul says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, is preaching of the gospel and of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last I... uh, By the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, basically those who don't have Greek culture, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to come and preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the righteousness of God, I'm sorry, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's ask God's blessing
1: and we'll get going together. Gracious Father, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity To gather around your word. Lord I. I thank you for your goodness. The goodness of sending your son. The goodness of. Sharing the gospel. Father I confess my sins in front of these people. I do not teach because I am worthy. But because you are. Father I do not want to share your word through the. Strengths of my own abilities. I'd much rather just share it through your grace. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Father, we love you. You are God. And we are in desperate need of you. So Father, bless your word. That's all I ask. Bless your word. Help me to remember my studies. Give me clear thoughts. And Father, I pray this and I ask this for your glory alone. If you're happy to see the sun, say amen. Amen.
0: Well, there it is. Last week we talked about identity. The church in Rome is in the middle of an identity crisis. They came back and said, this is not my church. That was in last week's study. So Paul says, your identity, he says this to the Jewish and the Gentile Christian in Rome, he says, your identity is not in your culture. No message for the American there today, is it? Your identity is not in your culture. It is not in your ethnicity. Church, your identity is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this week he goes and he follows that and he says, do not be ashamed of your identity, the gospel. With the makeup of the Roman church during this time, roughly 60, 62 A.D., this would have been 57 A.D., with the main temptation in the church were to find their identity really in in two different extremes with some variables in between. One extreme would be the Jewish believers who wanted to maintain some sort of adherence to the Old Testament Mosaic law. On the other hand, the Gentiles who have been alone for six years in Rome would like to maybe feel tempted to make the gospel a little bit more appealing to the political and educational and philosophical needs of the Roman culture. Here's a question. I I want you to answer this, so feel free to do so. My friends, does the church today struggle with the same temptations to make the gospel legalistic, or to make the gospel more liberal than the Bible says. Are we tempted to do that at all? Of course we are. There's nothing new under the sun. The the conservative or the legalist will say, let's bubble wrap the gospel with all of these rules and regulations that we can place around it so that we can protect the gospel from being um, moved away from. So let's bubble wrap it. And let's put all these rules and regulations. Here's a question for you. What happens when you wrap something with bubble wrap over and over and over again with extra biblical biblical rules? What happens to the gospel? Talk to me. You can't see it anymore. In fact, the object of our faith is not the gospel anymore, but the what? The bubble wrap. The legalism can't even see the gospel anymore the object of our faith is now what we have placed around it for we no longer see the gospel now the more liberal christian if you will is tempted to strip the gospel of anything that may be offensive to the world. Maybe they just want to break off the wrath of God or maybe snap off the moral commands of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Maybe let's remove the need for repentance and godly living. And over time, what does breaking things off from the gospel do to it? What does it do to it? Talk to me. It makes it unrecognizable. In fact, not only can you not recognize it, it becomes a false gospel. The object here is a false gospel. What Paul is about to say here in these verses is do not be ashamed of the grace and the freedom that comes with the gospel and don't be ashamed of the offense of the gospel at the same time. So what we're going to do here is we're going to move through these first verses rather quickly because I want to spend the majority of our time on verses 16 and 17. We will unpack this verse, these verses up here a little bit more in the evening. But just for fun, we can see Paul alluding to some of the historical context here that we studied last week. We can see he alludes to Jews being expelled from Rome in 49 AD. If you remember our study last week when he says this, Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. When the Jewish believers were expelled by Emperor Claudius, they went throughout the world. You can find that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, as it relates to Priscilla and Aquila. For six years, the Jewish believers lived their faith out in the world, throughout the world, everywhere but Rome. And by world, we don't mean the entire earth. We mean the known world at this time, the Mediterranean world. Now, to be clear, Paul's also encouraging gentile christians who are still in the roman church as well at this time in fact we see that in the words um you all he's talking to both jews and gentiles at this time now just because there is temptation and conflict within the church over their identity are we going to be more liberal are we going to be more conservative are we going to be legalistic you know what will people think even though there's some conflict over identity it doesn't mean they weren't dedicated to jesus christ Here's something, and feel free to amend this if you agree. Flawed people can be dedicated. Are we not all flawed people who need motivation and encouragement and correction at times? Even though we say we love Christ, are we still not need to be corrected and edified? Amen? That's what Paul's doing here. And by the way, that's what we need to do every day of our lives. Because here it is, and I've affirmed this because this is true. None of us will ever arrive. Amen? We're all sinners, say, by grace, just trying to glorify God a little bit more today than we did yesterday. So with that in mind, we see it here, all right? Just because there is temptation and conflict, we are all here. In fact, that's what Paul wants to do. In fact, he says here, he wants to desperately succeed in coming to them. Because while dedicated, they have some areas that they need to be corrected in, that they need to be strengthened in. Flawed people can be dedicated. Hence the words that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Now, I really like this here because the the word here, some, right here, it's ambiguous. I want to impart some gift to you. Paul doesn't know what gift he's going to impart yet because he doesn't know them. He's never been with them. He's never met them. He only hears about them. He's never been there. Paul just wants to bless them somehow, some way, with some gift. Now, it's important to note that the spiritual gifts that Paul is talking about here is not the charismatic, caram- write that down, all right? The charismatic sign gifts, and neither is it the general spiritual gifts that we find in Romans chapter 12. It's not talking about those uh, specifically here. But he is talking because one of the things is we know know this. That those kind of gifts come from the Holy Spirit and these believers would have already had those available to them upon salvation. They're not waiting for, for Paul to show up and go, here's what you've finally been waiting for. The gifts that Paul is talking about is in the broadest sense. But whatever he ends up doing, once he gets to know them, he says, I want it to be for your benefit Not his benefit. Hence the word, so that you might be established. That you might be strengthened up. That you might be built up. That you might be edified. Why? Because the church needs it. Because the church is in an identity crisis. The church is having problems with unity. And he goes, I want when I get to see you, and I get to know you, I just want to help you be established and matured. I want you to grab this here. He simply wants to enhance their spiritual faith. He does not say, I like this here. He does not say, this is what I do, and this is what you will get. He doesn't say that. No, he says, I want to come. I want to get to know you. I want to see you. I want to get to know you so that I might be a blessing to you. Have you ever received help from someone and it didn't help at all? Anyone at all? Have you ever had a problem, someone goes, I can help you with this, let me, and they they end up creating a larger issue, or they just waste your time. Am I alone on this at all? Some of you go, Pastor, you've done that to me. And you know what? You're in sin. Now, moving forward, where you need help and they don't help at all, it almost seems like they're advertising their ability or their knowledge more than they are trying to help you. Sometimes the help you want is not the help that is needed. Imagine if for a moment I had a, a broken down car, all right? And then all of a sudden, and I didn't get permission, but I think it's a pretty benign example here, but all of a sudden, Doc Dickinson or Dr. Lee, who are cardiologists and are experts in the heart, <coughs> and they see that my car is broken down, and all of a sudden they just say, everyone out of the way, I got this handled. Now, how many here just really picture Doc Dickinson and Lee under the hood of the car? Anyone at all? <laughs> and in their gifts, they push everyone away and they say, we're going to help Brett here. And he reaches into a bag, and it could be a tool bag. What is he going to pull out? Jumper cables, maybe, maybe a wrench, maybe a, a serpentine belt. I know what a serpentine belt is. And I went to seminary, all right? And uh, what is he reaching into the bags? And all of a sudden, he pulls out A stethoscope. And he begins to listen to my heart. And fear enters my mind as I hear the defibrillator charging in the background. You know, and I'm like, I need spark plugs. And he tells me everything that I need to know. Everything that I need to know to strengthen my heart and and, and what I can do to, to have heart health and avoid events and all of that stuff. And he gets done telling me that and he shuts the hood of the car and he goes, There you go. Not only has he not helped, but he has taken away the time I needed in order to fix the car. How often does this happen in the church? How often does this happen in the church? where we demand our round gift to be forced into the square need. The best approach to serving the church isn't to say, this is what I do, buckle up, because it's a double-barrel shotgun coming. But rather, what is it you need most? How can I help you? How can I serve in a way that will help more than it will advertise my abilities? Paul says my goal is to get to know you. He says, I want I want to get to know you and find the right way to help you so that and here's you see it right here, so that I may obtain some fruit among you. Since Paul is talking to believers here, it is with almost certainty he's talking about spiritual maturing of believers. He is writing the church. He is writing to Christians. So the fruit that he's talking about is that they would be spiritually mature and unified in the Lord. After all, he wants to bring the church together. And that will take the spiritual fruit in growth. Now to be clear, this would not exclude people coming to Jesus Christ. It wouldn't exclude new converts. It's not like, like someone ran off to Paul in, in, in Corinth at this time and, or in Rome in future years and say, hey, Paul, Billy wants to accept Christ. And Paul says, not now. I'm strengthening believers. The priority is spiritual strength because of who the audience is. The gift that Paul wants to bring is the purpose of the letter to them. To bring unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians that are tempted to find their identity in some quasi-gospel. And nothing brings unity to a divided church. Church, I want you to hear this. Nothing brings unity to the church more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, I am eager. Look, at, it's right up there. I am eager to preach the gospel to Christians. I am eager to bring the gospel to the church who is in Rome. I want to say this clearly: only the gospel brings unity. There are times where, in fact, time—I have a little bit of time. Who here would say? And this is this is not a joke. Who would here say? I—I'm a little bit more on the charismatic side of of my faith now i don't necessarily mean that you're calling fire down from heaven but man you express your faith through your emotions and 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 you just love celebrating jesus christ and 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 maybe you have some more freeing positions who here would say that that kind of represents me anyone at all okay and see that's an offense to the gospel is it not Rochelle, would you be willing to stand and represent that person? Hallelujah. All right. <laughs> Who here would say we need to maintain decorum in love? I'm more on the conservative side. Give, where's, where's preach it? All right, go ahead. Stand up, Matt. Good Lord. And I want you to see these two people. But very specifically... Rochelle and Matt, I want you to kind of feel free to look at one another here. In church, you look at them. This represents what we're trying to avoid. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. (laughs) Here it is about unity in the church. Oh, Dr. Lee, you're here. Was that okay that I used you? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, they're not here. What do I do? And so I thought asking for forgiveness would be better than permission. I learned that in seminary too. Now, between you two represents a lot of us here. Demanding conformity to one another, you must be like Matt and Matt must be like you, will never accomplish unity in the church. What brings unity in the church is when Matt says to Rochelle and Rochelle says to Matt, Let's make the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him preeminent over our personal positions. That is where unity is found. We're going to unpack that more tonight, and you are welcome to sit down and thank them for being embarrassed, all right? But the moment we try to make unity about biblical positions, it is fodder in the hands of our enemy. Because biblical positions that are not viewed through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be abused and perverted. It must be seen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. More on that tonight. My friends, we often think that the gospel is for the lost. We often think the gospel is for the lost. And it is, but hear this. The church needs to hear the gospel just as much as the world. Amen? We need to hear the gospel. Paul constantly taught the gospel to the church. We see it right here in the green. He constantly taught the gospel to the church. And for two reasons. One, that the lost in the pew would be saved. There is a tremendous amount of cultural Christians in the church today who know nothing but a prayer and call it salvation. And it is not. Their words. But also, not only for the lost in the pew, but the gospel, so that the gospel would never be replaced in the church with false idols. My friends, the only thing that can bring the Jews and the Gentiles and the church together is submitting to the gospel. And the truth of the matter is, the same is true for us as well. It is with this in mind that we can now begin to see, maybe for the first time, the context of these verses that we put on posters and put them on the wall. We see that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a group of people who already believe it. Now the first thing that we see here, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it must be interpreted through verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you so that you, to those of you who are in Rome. Why is Paul eager? Because he's not ashamed of it. It's his identity. It's It's everything. Church, may I ask you a simple question. Has the American church become ashamed of the gospel today? Hmm. This is about to get good. We'll come back to that. Let us remember the culture of Rome. Spoiler alert, it's a lot like America today. Let us remember the culture in Rome. One commentator summed it up like this. There are many reasons why a first century church might be a little bit uncomfortable about the gospel in Rome Think about it. The gospel of Jesus Christ being spoken to a sophisticated city like Rome would be absurd. Tell the most powerful empire in the world about a Jewish carpenter who turned into a prophet from the city of Nazareth, stinking Nazareth, who was executed by the Roman government in the most humiliating manner possible by being crucified. Now, on top of that, Rome is the capital of the civilized world. Here it is. I want you to hear this. The messenger of the church better appeal to the educated and offer political solutions. Has the church tried to mold the gospel into some sort of quasi-political solution to America? Of course we have. It better offer a political solution to the pressing needs of the day. They better offer some answers to the massive problem of slavery and greed and lust and violence of the people. Or Rome will see the gospel as useless. Let us remember he's writing to the church. Let me just cut to the chase and get to the point. Are we ever tempted to soft serve the gospel? Are we ever tempted to strip it down, to make it more marketable? Or how about this, strip it down so that we can excuse the fact that we live like devils? Maybe just take the wrath of God out and emphasize love. Has the church done that? Let's strip it of repentance and make it about mental health. Has the church done that? Maybe strip it down to some social gospel that exists to fix the cultural and social and political demands of our day. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see a soft-serve gospel like that, all it does is looks like poop to me. How many here are never getting soft-serve again? Anyone at all? I say that because it is. Maybe just sell it more effectively. So we can find acceptance. Here's the problem. None of those quasi soft serve gospels. Here it is. Make a person right with God. The purpose of the church is to tell people inside of the church and outside of the church. How to be right with God. Not how to be right with the world. Here it is. The lost are already right with the world. The church doesn't have to make them right from where they are from. The reason Paul says I'm proud of the gospel is because it is the only thing that makes us right with God. In fact, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, this word power, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know is the Greek word uh, dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. I don't have to tell you how powerful dynamite is when it is applied to something. Think about that. If I took a piece of dynamite And I slid it into the soul of this guitar. You're the guitar, okay? And I am too. And I slid it in here and I light it on fire and nothing happened. How much power have you witnessed? Why is it we claim the power of God in us when nothing happens? It is the power of God to everyone who believes the power to enact salvation on someone's soul is the gospel it is not your works it is not your rituals it is it is not the sacraments it's not your baptism it is the good news of Jesus Christ but here it is in order to believe something you have to know what believe means we have to know what it means a lot of times we go I believe in Jesus Christ well I got news for you you don't get to define the terms of belief God sets the terms amen so we got to know what that means what does it mean to believe it can have several different applications here's the first one saving faith and belief is not simply a general belief that Jesus is the savior is not simply a general belief yeah i believe jesus is lord and he's my savior demons believe that and will never find salvation they tremble at it. Belief is not a praying a prayer and then nothing else. My friends, I agree with my brother Paul Washer who has said nothing has sent more people to hell in America today than the sinner's prayer. To think that we can pray that we can say a prayer and live like the devil and call it the power of God into salvation is to reject and mock its omnipotence. The reason one cannot claim the gospel and live like the world is because in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. Do we think for a moment that the dynamite that the dynamite of the gospel that reveals the righteousness of an all-holy God will leave no mark in our life. No need to repent. When true faith is expressed in the gospel, God imparts the righteousness of Jesus in you, in me, and in the lost. When they repent. Martin Luther called it an invasive alien righteousness. Not of ourselves. That not only determines our standing before God. We like that part. I have been declared righteous. Yes you have. But it not only determines our standing before God. But that gospel also affects our standard of living before him. When was the last time, something alien entered invasively into a host, and there were no evidence of it happening. In fact, by definition, something that is invasive does what? Talk to me. Give me some words. It's invasive, it does what? What's that? Okay, it attaches. What else? It takes, it takes over. It's invasive. It's alien. It's his righteousness. Can you imagine how boring the alien movies would be today if the invasive alien entered the host and nothing happened? What are you watching? It's a dormant alien movie. What's the plot about? Nothing. It's this guy walking around. Apparently he's got some sort of dead alien in him. There's a reason why he says you will become a new what? Because there's the power of God. It contains the righteousness of God, and it is not dormant. Again, salvation is not a simple general belief in Jesus. In fact, Paul goes on to say, it is so invasive, and I like this. Hit the button because I can't remember. There it is. It's from faith to faith. That's powerful right there. It points back to everyone. Everyone. Now, this statement has a large umbrella. It's inclusive of a couple ideas here. First, faith to faith points back to the word everyone who believes. And you see it right there. It is an individual responsibility. I'm not saved because my parents were saved and baptized into the church. I have a personal responsibility. Faith after faith after faith after faith. It is an individual responsibility. It is something that is not attained through heritage or parents or church or baptism. It is a personal responsibility. And number two, it includes the idea that faith will produce faith. We need to hear this in a culture that is addicted to the sinner's prayer and nothing else. True faith in the gospel of Jesus is so powerful, it will produce a life that lives out the faith. In fact, it's rather obvious here, from faith to faith. Oh, and by the way, it, it's incorporated into the word believing, which, by the way, is in the present tense, which means is believing, not believed. Write that down. Okay, Believed, duh, in the past, but believed at a moment in time, and it is producing continuous progressive fruit in their lives. It has ongoing effects. In total, the definition would look like this. True belief is is a single event that produces ongoing, lifelong process that is tangibly visible in your life. And just so that they and we don't miss this and go, I don't know if I agree with that, that kind of messes with our sinner's prayer, here it is, good! God help us that we have turned salvation into a formula, that we have turned the Christian life into a formula rather than a relationship. And just so Paul says, I don't want you to miss this point. He says, the righteous one will live by faith. The emphasis here is on live. Because you're believing. Paul says a true believer will increasingly live an increasingly godly life. This is called progressive sanctification and the perseverance of the saints. Because when you have an, invali- an alien invasive righteousness in you, it takes over. No, it doesn't mean we're perfect. How many here will agree, I'm not perfect. Anyone at all? There's a chance, every once in a great while, I don't even know what a word means, much less pronounce it. But it's God in me, not me. So in summary, the gospel is one event that produces and contains three clear Actions according to the whole word of God. Number one, we must with our mind understand and consent to the gospel. Now, that's where we're really good at. We're really good at number one, say the parent sinner's prayer. Agree to these terms. Sign here. Get your fire insurance. Notarize it with, with, with eternal security and go live your life the way you want. That's not God's terms of belief. First one, we must understand and consent to the gospel and embrace it. Number two, we must respond to that truth with repentance of sins because of that truth. For there if, if there is, now grab the, the, the progress here, if there is no understanding, I'm sorry, if there's no repentance, then can we really claim to understand who Jesus is and what he did for us? Can we really say we understand and it produces no repentance? And then finally, true repentance faith will produce fruit of godliness. We find that in Luke 3. We find that in Acts chapter 26. We find that in Ephesians 5.8. This is what belief means. This is what it looks like. In order to say, I believe, we must understand the biblical definition. And knowing this, here's a question. Knowing these three things, here's the question. Have you believed? By the way, this is the case of every account of salvation in the Bible. Every account of salvation in the Bible. Faith that produces repentance, that produces transformation. It is the definition of saving faith every time we find it. How is it today that we have stripped the gospel down to simply saying, I agree. My friends, if there is no number three, if there is no fruit of godliness, if there is no growing godliness in our lives, then how can we claim that there's been repentance? Because repentance is to turn towards God. If there is no fruit, how can we claim repentance? If there is no repentance, how in the world can we say we understand who Jesus is and what he has done? Here it is, we can't and we haven't. We have generations of children who have grown up in the church with their rears at home right now with no desire for Christ, thinking they belong to Him. And you don't. The gospel powerfully produces results, it always has. Every time, all the way back to Abraham. That's going back a ways. That's been a minute. You'll find that in Romans chapter 4, 16 through 21. By the way, you also find it in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in in Genesis. He's the paradigm of faith. Why in the world would we teach a gospel that is different than every example of it in the Bible? I'll tell you why. Because such a message does not excuse our lostness. It does not excuse our lack of growth. So it is in love that we will conclude with the gospel as God has defined it. And not a gospel that will make one right with the world. Or allow parents to pretend their children are saved as they live like devils. But rather it is a gospel that will make one right with God. And when we are right with God, church, will we not be right with one another? The gospel is desperately needed by the church. So here it is. My friends, God is righteously perfect. He is holy. He cannot tolerate the presence of sin. You are a sinner. And so am I. We are totally depraved. On our best day, we are incapable of holy perfection. God's wrath is great against sin. His judgment is everlasting agony absent from His presence for eternity. And the only thing equal to the immense, immeasurable wrath of God is His love. Knowing that we are incapable of living a holy, perfect life, God sent His preeminent Son to live a perfect life on our behalf. Jesus who never sinned became the sin that you and I can't stop doing and offers you his righteousness that that you couldn't attain on your best day. Can our minds even comprehend this? Jesus died on a cross taking our place of that eternal judgment. And on the third day, according to God's word, he rose again, conquering eternal death, which is the penalty of your sin. So that those who truly understand who Jesus is and what he did will joyfully repent of their sin, willingly running towards God. And such a faith will not be in word only but in living a godly life. And we will look at this and some may say, how is it that one man can take the sin of all mankind? And here it is, because that one man is worth more than all mankind put together. My friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only imparts salvation to the lost, but brings unity to his bride. May God deliver us from from the church growers of today that tell us we have to be sensitive to what people Want That we have to scratch them where they itch. We have to tailor our ministries and our sermons around social demands and virtue signaling. Or people may not see the need to attend such a church. And to that I say, in love but without humility, fine. If being right with God is not what people want, then let them look for they want somewhere else. My friends, there is nothing people need more than to have their minds exploded with the understanding of who God is and how to be right with him. Dare I say that such a church may be filled with unity. Gentiles who love Jews. Here's one that's even harder. Republicans who love Democrats. King James only, who who will sit next to an NIV, suits with jeans, rigid and flexible, not because we share a cultural identity, but because we share Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And such an understanding of the gospel might even make one use their spiritual gift for the betterment of the church rather than using the church for the betterment of them. Oh. Had a young man say to me, and I'm going to close with this, You know I'm going to close because piano player's there. Don't tell me you don't notice that. Like, yes. I mean, this has been good, but really, how much? Now, I once had a young man come up to me when he was visiting the church, and he said this. You know, the church is nothing more than a company with a product. I kind of snarled. Like, how do I apply the gospel to this moron? No, i just... And that's a medical term, okay? Don't judge me. No, how... The church is nothing more than a company with a product. You better have a good product that people want or they'll just go and find that product somewhere else. Church, hear this. The gospel of God is not his venture into Capitalism. The gospel is not God's venture into capitalism. It is the only life vest in a raging ocean of His wrath. And we either accept it, repent, and live for Him, or we don't. My answer to such a horrifying approach to church is this. I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith to faith to faith. My friends, the world is drowning. The American church is fractured. Only the gospel can save the soul of the lost and bring unity to the church. More on this this evening. It's going to be a deep and dense study tonight. To be honest, and I mean this in love, only the mature will digest it well. Many others will find themselves with a doctrinal sour stomach. But here it is. God sets the menu, not us. Amen? Gracious Heavenly Father. May we be a church, a bride, who is not ashamed of the gospel on either side. May we never abuse our freedom. May we never wrap it in bubble wrap. We love you, Lord. May we be right with you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. Lord willing, I'll see you tonight. You are